I'm Liz Gold, and you're listening to Conversations. Stories about strength, courage, and making it through. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Conversations. I'm your host, Liz Gold. Today, I have Kai Kelly on the show. And before I bring her on, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Born and raised in Westchester County, New York, Kiana Kai Kelly is a passionate empath that loves words and how they can tell a story. Writing since the age of seven, Kai began sharing her writing humbly through open mics and blogs. She has authored a book of poetry called Love Kai, and is currently a contributor for Born Brown All Rights Reserved, writing pieces entitled Protests, Felonies, and Privilege, and Anguish of a Mother of Boys in 2020. Welcome to the show, Kai. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Kai, so we know each other through Born Brown, Mm -hmm. which is the new website that we're creating, supporting, and basically creating a community for people of the global majority. And you're contributing powerful pieces such as the anguish of a mother of boys in 2020 and protests, felonies, and privilege. And I actually want to read an excerpt of anguish of a mother of boys. But first, before we do that, like, how did you get involved? Um, Shalanda Ingram is a dear old friend of mine. And I use the word old affectionately, not to tell our ages, but we've known each other quite a long time. And, you know, I used to have a blog. And one of the problems that I had with the blog was, in my mind, was like, you know, just giving away all this free content and just it being out in the universe. And as I was published, she was telling me, okay, we're going to launch Born Brown site, and we're going to have a platform. And I'd love to be a part of that. So that's pretty much how it evolved. And I've been very blessed because of it. I love it. Yay. I'm so glad. I mean, it's really one of the first contributors to the site. And so we're really building the community from the ground up. And it's it's really exciting because it's starting to really take shape. And so that's bornbrown.us. And I'll put that in the show notes. But I want to read an excerpt from the anguish of a mother of boys in 2020, because just to give people an idea of what your writing is like, and I know you have something to read a little later on, but just to sort of guide our conversation. So there is a piece, this is a paragraph, and it says, there have been marches, organizations, and protests, but the beat goes on. The only relevant question has become, how do we stop the killing of unarmed Blacks? People have belabored language and posture, etc. But this is a systemic issue, a policy issue. This is a melanin issue. Blacks aren't doing anything to warrant death. Those with guns are just afraid of Black skin. The innards of our police and judicial system have to be churned, vomited out, and restructured anew. We need a dedicated review of all police department hiring, training, and shooting incidents. Insert unpopular opinion. Departments should be stripped of legal weapons and have to undergo mandatory community police training. Finally, policy needs to be implemented, issuing a mandatory minimum sentencing penalty for unarmed shootings. Part of what fuels the killings is that there is no consequence. It may all sound so drastic, but isn't a mother burying her child for no good reason with no one being punished drastic? Mm -hmm. The change starts with policy and accountability through enforced legislation. Who will truly use their privilege and access to protect our future? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to like have that read to you? I was like, wow. I said that. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I know that feeling where you're like, wow, did I write that? But yes. Yeah. I mean, that's just one snippet of your writing. I mean, it's like really powerful and really, you know, profound. And so, you know, you've been doing a tremendous amount of writing for the site. And so, I mean, how did you get into writing? Like, let's start there. You know, how you said age seven, but you know, how did you know you were a writer? Um, well, I was actually a dancer first. Mm-hmm. So I started dancing when I was three. Mm-hmm. I love dancing, love movement. But my dad thought that I was really too emotional. And he'd be like, nobody wants to hear that. Write that down. And so mm-hmm. I just started to learn at a very early age that writing and paper was just a place that could, that would never betray me. You know, it was mm-hmm. always there. It was always a sanctuary for me. and. I think I had my first poem published when I was in high school. I had a poem called Soft Kisses from a Tender Stranger that was published in high school, like yearbook, I want to say, or something like that. So that was probably one of my first pieces that was published. And, you know, I liked it, but I didn't look at writing as a profession, you know, as someplace that I could go professionally. I just looked at it as something like, I really like this. Mm-hmm. And I really like dancing, but I did not want dancing to become work for me because I was I just really enjoyed it that much that I wanted to hold it close to my heart. Mm-hmm. So I didn't end up going to school for either dancing or writing. I went to school to study to be a psychologist. And after a couple of years, just, you know, life, I just dropped out and did not finish my degree. And with writing, I always had it. So whether I was journaling or writing poems that I didn't share with anyone, it was always kind of happening in the background. And that's how the process started. And then, you know, there's been a lot of experiences that have happened over the course of my life that led me to the space where I never thought that my writing was shareable. So I always thought my writing was, you know, decent for me, you know, it's good enough. It's like clothes that you wear around the house, you know, that's kind of how I would say I looked at my writing. Like, you know, I did not think that it would resonate or make sense to people outside of me or that it was as good as say like the Nikki Giovanni's who's one of my um, sheroes and you know, those types of people. So when I was 20, someone said, Oh, you should go to an open mic. And I hadn't ever been to an open mic. I never, you know, and I I'm terrible, like terrible, terrible stage, right. Being in front of people, it feels very, very vulnerable. So Mm-hmm. I was not thinking that that was a space for me, but I ended up going, I ended up loving it. And I said, oh, okay, I kind of like this. And so that's how, you know, my writing, my relationship with it and being published. Oh, wait, we didn't get to that yet. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get there though. I, I swear, because you have a book that, you know, everybody should look at and pick up and buy. Actually, you said so much in that one piece. And I just wanted to follow up with you because first mm-hmm. of all, what your dad said around, you know, you thought you were too emotional and nobody wants to hear it, write it down. I mean, at least he told you to write it down, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, that's great that he told you to write it down. I mean, but wow, like, you know, 
not only did he tell me to write it down, he told me that my handwriting was chicken scratch, which my handwriting really was horrible. And so he made me, I remember very distinctly having to practice my handwriting for two hours a day. He he made me practice my handwriting because it was like, and they say, and I don't know if this is true, but they say like people that, um, that are either high intellect or high creativity, like sometimes that the writing is not like consistent, which is why they say, oh, that's a doctor's signature or a doctor's handwriting. I don't know what the relationship is, but you know, it's like our brains are almost moving so fast that we can't push it out onto the paper. Right. Yeah. I guess that's so, that's intense. Like right. Practicing your handwriting for two hours a day. But I mean, I guess the point is, is that he directed you to have an outlet, even though he was saying you were emotional, but I guess, I mean, what a way to start writing. Right. You know, the other piece that I thought was so interesting too, is that you decided to keep your writing for you and not do it as work because it's like I recognize as a writer myself, you know, and being a writer and getting paid for it, like in a business commercial capacity, it's like, oh, I don't actually want to do this type of writing anymore Mm -hmm. because it's feeling out of alignment with what's important to me and how I actually experience writing. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. so I just think that that's really interesting and that I think it's awesome that you kept those dance and writing for yourself and went into another field because I've heard other people doing that too. I mean, obviously that's a thing, but. Um. I actually got a scholarship for dance to a college and I did not know enough about going to college and financial aid and all of that stuff to know how things worked. But I knew that I did not want my artistic ability tethered to you know, my education. I knew that I wanted it to be kind of a safe space for me, you know, and I had also, you know, already met with some challenges with not fitting the uniformity of other dancers. So in the dance community, a lot of the girls are super, super slim. There's a lot of eating disorders. You know, I'm a little curvy. So I had already kind of encountered some of that with going to professional private dance schools and art schools and things like that. And I wasn't interested in, you know, developing any new (laughs) situations, right? So it was just kind of like, I'm going to keep my dancing, you know, for myself. Yeah. What kind of dancing do you do? Pretty much everything. Ballet, modern, tap, jazz, African, you name it. I pretty much did it. I started the first all girl, be girl dance group in my elementary school. Because oh, cool. We only had space. Like they only let the boys dance at recess. So I was like, we have to infiltrate this. And my good friend at the time, Morgan, could do like all the floor moves, like she could windmill and, you know, do all the stuff on the floor. And I was like the dance part. And we just like crashed the boys on stage one day. It was so dope. But yeah. (laughs) I love knowing this about you. I had no idea. (laughs) So piece about what I like too is when you were like, oh yeah, I didn't have any experience going to an open mic. And then you were like, I don't know if I'm going to like this or you didn't think you're going to like it. And then you got there and you loved it. And so like, what did you love about it? What did you discover like being on stage? I think I discovered how therapeutic it was, not only for myself, but for people in the audience. 
So never before had it even entered my mind that something that I wrote in private that was birthed in my brain would resonate or mean anything to anybody else. Never in my mind, you know, prior to that. And even now I still get surprised like, oh, that means something to you. It's like, I just feel very print about my writing, if you will. So when I think the first reaction that I got from a significant piece was um, Sycamore Fantasies, which I wrote to a flautist, flutist, I don't want to say it wrong, but a flute soloist was playing kind of during, like the band had broke, you know, was taking a break and this guy got on stage and he was just playing the flute. And I wrote, you know, Sycamore Fantasies while he was playing. And the first time that I did I did that poem live, people, the guys, I just saw the guys all light up, you know, like every guy in the room thought this poem was about him. Like, yes, <laughs> this is my poem. You know, and I love that for them. And they did a tree night because the poem is called Sycamore Fantasies, which is, you know, a tree. And so they had a tree night where all the poems were kind of about trees. That was the theme of it. And it was so cool. And it was, you know, propelled by Sycamore Fantasy. So that's one of my coolest moments of going to open mic. And um, that was back in St. Louis. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. Because being on stage, it's like you instantaneously get a response. Like even a non-response is a response. So when people you see people lighting up because of your writing, I mean, how fulfilling and gratifying is that? I mean, amazing. Yeah. And I'm a reader. So when I was starting, when I was emerging with sharing my poems publicly, slam poetry and performance poetry was really big, right? Mm-hmm. So I felt very, very small compared to that because that wasn't my thing. And so I'm like, okay, these people are going to do like these 11 minute, you know, monologue, you know, fire, you know, firecracker pieces. And then I'm going to get up there with my little journal and be like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> and so I'm like, this is going to be so horrible, you know, but I never forget. I saw the great Sonia Sanchez. Mm-hmm. On, she was on like ESPN or one of these like writer, you know, writer's guild type of things. And she was reading and she had her book and she had her glasses and she was reading. And, you know, I saw a lot of the greats that I you know, that means something to me doing the same thing. And I said, well, these are authors and this is really my, that's my lane. I'm an author. So I started to embrace the fact that, yes, even though I'm not a performance artist in that regard, I still do the same great thing that Nikki Giovanni and Toni Morrison and Sonia Sanchez does, right? So that was my kind of, hug that I would give myself, you know? Yeah. I love that because, you know, somebody getting on stage and doing a slam poetry, slam poem or, you know, a spoken word. I mean, it's beautiful, amazing. And so is somebody getting up and reading out of their journal. You know, I think there has to be room for all of it. I mean, that's the beauty of art, right? And how we share and also appreciating different styles, you know? So 
I love that you give yourself that hug because you are an author and you have read out and you have stuff published, you have work published, you know, on Born Brown and in other places. And so how did the book Love Kai, which is poetry, come together? Like, how did you decide that you wanted to publish a book of poems? I was married. Mm -hmm. And over the course of my marriage, my ex-husband at the time kind of reinforced the idea that, you know, the seed that I already had, which was that writing wasn't really a way to make money. So Mm -hmm. I just thought I'd continue to share my writing, you know, whenever I wanted to and, you know, that it was more of a hobby. And then there was a season, there was a period where... My family experienced a lot of loss, probably an abnormal amount of loss for our family. I would say just like a whole chunk of our family just died, you know, in a very short period of time. And the gift of life and how precious it is and how you don't know how much time you have, you know, you think that this person is going to be around for this milestone or that milestone and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. and I remember specifically my dear sweet cousin T, his son passed away. Right after graduating high school, he was playing a pickup game of basketball and he passed out in the gym and he ended up, you know, passing away. And, you know, T was a major supporter and encourager of my poems. Like he'd always just call me and say, hey, cuz, you know, let me get a poem or, you know, when's the book coming out? He would just constantly say that to me. And Mm -hmm. so right after his son passed away, I said, okay, if I do nothing else, I'm going to at least make this book so that the people who have loved me and supported me and believed in me this whole, my whole life have something, you know, of mine, of something of that writing legacy. And so that's how the title came about of Love Kai, because I look at the book as like a love letter to everyone that has cared about me over the years. Mm -hmm. And it's a gifting to them. It's me saying, you know, this is for you, Love Kai, you know. So that's kind of how the book came about. Wow. Wait, so when did it come out and how can people get it? The anniversary of the book is actually on September 11th. Oh, I I know. Let me just back up a little bit. I did not choose that date. I definitely wanted a Tuesday because Tuesday is like the normal, is is a big publishing date for books. But I was going back and forth with proofing and I had finally said, okay, that proof is good. I'm ready. And so they had said to me, okay, it'll be a few days and it'll be live. And I said, okay. And then it was my best friend, like just a a few short hours, you know, posted on her page that she had the book, right? (laughs) So it's like that she had, you know, that she had made her purchase of the book. And so it, it went live kind of on accident on that date. So I always say like, you you know, the 12th, the 12th, it went live, but yeah, it'll be two years old on the 12th. Mm -hmm. Um, My little baby, it's a little toddler. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, and it's on Amazon. People can, and we're going to put the link in the episode notes and that you have quite a few reviews, you know, people loving it. And just so people know, we're recording this, it's September 1st. So when, so Kai's book is turned two, by the time this comes out, it might be right around that time. So we're in the age of the pandemic. So I always like to say when uh, we actually record the episode, but were you going to read something from your book or did you want to read something else? I actually, I feel like since you talked about Sycamore Fantasies, I feel like I should do Sycamore Fantasies. When you're ready, I mean, because I also want to ask you, what was it like to self-publish a book? What was that process like? Did you self-publish it? Yeah, it was exhausting and I almost gave up several times, definitely closest to the end. You know, in my mind, I had this vision of like, you know, all the work was done, right? So all the poems and everything were written. So I was like, how long could this possibly take? You know, in my brain, I'm like, this can't be much of a process because I already have all the equipment. It's not like I've got to go to a cabin in the woods and stay for six months and come up with all these great ideas. I have everything. But there were so many pieces. And and that's why I help other authors because I learned, I did everything the hard way. So I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have any kind of tutelage. I was just kind of feeling my way around in the dark and everything from, you know, the back cover to picking the front cover to the ISBN to formatting to, Mm -hmm. you know, under over a hundred pages. It was just, it was a lot, (laughs) you know, and it was a lesson. And then because you're in it, you know, and you're familiar with the words and the poems and you're touching them and you're reading them and you're looking at them all the time, you get kind of creatively tired, meaning you're not necessarily able to pick up errors as readily as someone who has fresh eyes for it. Right. So, you know, because you're looking at it just so much. So I was really grateful I had employed three amazing editors. My editing team is awesome. Yes. <laughs> the best part about them was they were free. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So I had my dear, my beloved aunt to Helen was definitely one of my eyes. She was a secretary for over 30 years. So, you know, she can type like 152 words a minute, something crazy like that. So wow. she was my backup, you know, and it felt good to have that backup and get feedback and get suggestions. So yeah, it was a process, but I had put the book, had a date that I wanted to have it published and I was getting close to that date and the proof wasn't ready. The proof wasn't right. And I just got discouraged and I had put it down. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm not supposed to publish this. Maybe I'm supposed to do it a different way. You know, I'll just wait. And I put it down and I probably didn't look at the book, touch it, do anything for like three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then I was sitting in the living room and I had an idea because it was a formatting issue that was bugging me. And I had an idea and I was like, and I jumped up and I was able to fix it. And as soon as it was like, all lights went green after that, you know, like as soon Mm -hmm. as I got over that block, but I just had to step away from it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so interesting and cool because I, I mean, and deep because it's like when you're so immersed in a project or whatever, I mean, if you're building a business or doing whatever, 
and you feel like you're stuck and you're like, oh, I don't know. I think I need to just quit or like maybe not do this anymore. You gave yourself space to just sort of let the juices fly, like the energy, you know, do its thing. And then you got the idea. And I think whenever you can do that, instead of this is what they say, like, you know, don't quit, just rest. You know, I mean, you were working so hard. And like, I don't think people really understand like what it goes into to actually self-publish a book. I mean, yes, there are a lot of platforms out there that can help you do that. But I mean, not only are you the artist and the writer and creating this amazing content, but you also have to like format it. And like you Mm -hmm. said, go through all of the different steps and then you publish it. And then what, how do you let people know that it's there? You have to market it, you know? So it's a tremendous amount. It's a big project. So, and you are celebrating two years of having a book, you know, um, which is awesome. And so is the poem that you're going to read from that book? It's in the book. Yeah. Okay. Sycamore Fantasies is an oldie but goodie. And, you know, it's kind of the, I always call it a signature piece, but what has been funny to me is that over the years, looking at the ways that in, even in my reviews on Amazon, you'll see different, you know, from men and women as well, what poems resonate with people. I, and I think that that is one of the great joys that I've had as an author is getting that data, you know, is a learning that. So this book has a poem called Reluctant Rehab. And, you know, it opened up a whole other audience to my work because the poem is based on perspective, right? So you may read it and get one thing from it. Somebody else may read it and get it from get another thing from it. I don't like to give people and say, oh, Liz, this is exactly what the poem is about. You know, if, if it heals you because you relate to it, however, then that's all that matters to me. Mm-hmm. So it's been really a journey seeing how different people relate to different poems. And then like one of my son's favorite poem, you know, he has a favorite poem in there that very unique to me. You know, he even did it on his, um, on his social media. He read it out loud. He's like, it's my favorite poem, you know, in the book, Battle Scars. So just finding out what poems people connect to and that they mean something to them. And then also I'm thinking about what, it meant to me when I wrote it and how we had these two different experiences and the same poem pulled us together. Mm, I love that. Yeah. That's, that's insane. Right. That's beautiful. Ah, I mean, and do you write poems? Like how do you write them? Do they just come to you? I know you showed me a photo of like all your different. <laughs> <laughs> I showed you my poem, <laughs> my, my poetry, uh, chaos. Yeah. I really can relate. I have so many notebooks, like honestly, and I just really relate to that. So, you know, how do, do you sit down and you're like, okay, I have two hours to write. Or are you like, you know, scribbling poems like on your lunch break? I do not have dedicated time to poems, to my writing process. My writing process is extremely organic and I'm learning that it doesn't have to be. Like, I'm like, I was just telling my friend yesterday, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to do like a 30 day word challenge where like every day you take one word and you just write about that word Mm. or you write about that theme, you know? But for the most part, yes, it's just, you know, things that come to me 
things that are on my mind. You know, my mom used to say, everything that comes to your mind doesn't have to come out of your mouth. (laughs) So sometimes I feel like it's a safer space for me to go to the paper. And I'm, I like to actually write. So technology school, and I have used like audio, you know, the audio recorder on my phone, and I've used the notepad on my phone. But when I get the urge, when something comes to my brain, I like, I want a pen, a nice pen, and some paper. (laughs) There was a time when I was like writing on the backs of like brown paper bags, like pieces of brown paper bags. So yeah, it's not cute. You know, it would drive someone's OCD would be upset with me. <laughs> but, you know, whatever works really, you know, for you. And I also like your thing, your your piece about the pen, because I, I think it's nice to have a nice pen, you know? Yeah, it's like I was um, visiting, I was visiting family in New York and my cousin had these, these special pens and I took one, I like, I was signing. He let me use one to autograph, you know, to, to sign his book. And I was like, ooh, I'm keeping this. And then he gave me the whole pack. And I was like, <gasps> and I read this thing. And it's like, yeah, sex is good. But have you ever had a really good pin? And I was like, that is me. I am a pin. I love pins. I love them. Oh, my gosh. I think you just said the quote of the uh, conversation. That was <laughs> Yeah, like, that's so great. But have you ever had a good pen? Oh, oh my, my goodness. God. Oh, my God. Spoken like a true writer, I think. Gosh. That is, it's just like a love connection. You're just like, oh, my God. Like, you're excited about all the features. Like, now a lot of the pens are have that feature where you can use them. I guess they're styluses or whatever. So they've got foam on the front. But it's the glide, you know, because if you can't get a good glide, you know, as a writer, it's like useless, you know, because you got to, you don't know how, where this poem is going to take you. It could be one page. It could be eight pages. You know, you don't want a pen that's going to cut out on you. You got ED. Your pen got ED. No. (laughs) So. So much. It's so true. I know. (laughs) I really get it. That's awesome. I love yeah. that. I love that we're just talking about pens and glide because it's true. I totally, I totally get that. So please, whenever you're ready, like we, I would love to hear this poem whenever you feel like. Yes. Let me go ahead and do this. And again, this is in my book, which is available on Amazon called Love Kai. And this would be Sycamore Fantasies. I will think of something silly like you with me under a sycamore tree. Never been there before. Wonder what that would feel like. Do the branches and leaves shield all the light? Will your strong body embrace me tight? A sycamore tree sounds so sensual, so unusual for us to be there. Bare toes, spirit flowing through us, God communicating through our presence, sun radiated, natural, delightful effervescence on our black skin, very baby like you. Soft lips, strong shoulders, feeling avalanche like a boulder, yet not crushed as your hand brushed against my knee and the fluttery butter I can see while you smile and speak softly to me, erotically, provocatively, encouraging me just to be me, just to be free. With this feeling of sensual spiritual conquest manifested by the touch, absolute touch of me to you, your skin to mine, tingling the whole time down my spine. Brother, you are so divine and damn fine if you ask me. 
if you stare into my eyes so mystically under this here sycamore tree where I wouldn't imagine myself, I find in fact you with me under the huge sycamore tree with grass for miles and the crisp clean Nile close to our hut, my sweet insatiable you, I have loved so deeply, so completely for over an eternity. You have quenched my thirst, transformed my lust for your spirit into love for my heart, which beats at the start of one of your strong revolutionary speeches about how it all comes down. The leaves of the sycamore tree tickle my face and I transcend to a place where nothing is more beautiful than a man loving a woman, where soothing breezes whistle through trees and clear water forever consumes the seas and no one ever worries about bowing on knees or kissing ass or mowing grass or paying bills. You are just living at God's will and at his command. It's amazing how I am laying here with you and the creator is watching us too. Listening when you tell me how you love me and show me with your gentle affection, piercing through with just the scent of you, drenched in oil, chocolate covered, ooh, ooh. I'm craving this intoxicating concoction. Got an itch I need to scratch like a newborn chick, ready to hatch, balloon ready to pop dynamite ready to explode. Allow me to unleash, no spiritually implode under a sycamore tree. My love for infinity, sycamore encompassed and caressed by the warmth of your kiss. I am blessed always. And it is always a blessing to have you in my midst and on my team and in my honey sycamore dream. That was Kai Kelly reading Sycamore Fantasies right out of her book of poetry called Love Kai. And for full disclosure, because you know how I like to have full disclosure on the show, my mic completely went when we were recording that episode right after Kai read that. I My mic completely went out. And so we are coming back for a part two of this podcast. It's not really a part two. It's part two for us. But for you, it's just sort of like, oh, here we are. They're back. So we're re-recording this second part after the reading of that amazing, amazing poem. And I think originally I was like, "Woo! I can see why those guys were all like perked up thinking it was for them because, wow, steamy stuff, Kai. I love that poem. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. So I encourage everybody to go check out Kai's book, Love Kai, on Amazon. And of course, we're going to put the link into the show notes. And, you know, to just close out this episode, Kai, like, so what's next for your writing? I hope a lot of things, actually. I was just getting ready to work on being a mentor in the juvenile detention center here. And I'm hoping it got kind of shut down because of COVID. So I'm hoping to develop some type of virtual way to still deliver that program into the juvenile detention center here. And maybe it'll get you know picked up by other places, but the premise of it is critical thinking through creative writing. So my idea was to get the young people that are in these horrible situations to start walking and unpacking their thought processes and emotions through writing. I'm also hoping to do, record a like 30 minute kind of sketch situation. I'm just more writing of all the things, you know, that matter to me 
So it's just, I just, I just hope to be able to, you know, put more content out and do more things and hopefully impact more lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are doing that already. I mean, you're in Florida, just in case people didn't know that. And so working with kids in juvenile detention, I would imagine is so super powerful to help them get in touch with their own stories and, you know, write down what has happened to them. And also, I mean, creative expression to give them an out, you know, an escape. Hopefully you'll find a way to be able to do that over Zoom. I hope that's, you know, a possibility. And I mean, you are writing for Born Brown. I mean, you're doing so many different types of writing, you know, and it's interesting because I know we, we talked the other day and now we're coming back and it's like, I was like really reflecting on our conversation and I was like, wow, it's so cool to just talk to you as a writer because you're such a diverse writer. Like you do pieces for Born Brown, which is like journalistic and sort of opinion based. You do poetry, you write, I think you write essays. I mean, you do so much. Yeah. So Yes. And I have a book, I have a novel actually (laughs) that I've been working on for a while. And so, you know, I'm excited about all the things and how they are, I'm able to share different pieces of myself with people. Um, So there's like the little, there's the revolutionary in there and then there's the lover and then there's, you know, that I want to change the world dreamer person. So all these different unique parts of myself and having the avenues to be able to express that. It's a blessing. It's cool. Yeah. And one last question before we wrap up. So, you know, you had talked about how the solo flute art, flute artist, flutist, mm-hmm. <laughs> flute artist, uh, you know, inspired you to write Sycamore Fantasies, which was like amazing. And what inspires you to write or what motivates you to write? I spend a lot of time by myself. I'm a loner. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of time, you know, my brain is constantly moving and I get inspired by, you know, things that are happening outside of me. I get inspired by things that are happening inside of me. And I just try to find an avenue. Sometimes it's as simple as a journal entry. So I had a journal entry once. It wasn't really so much a journal entry. It was just, in my mind, it was just a collection of thoughts that I was navigating, excuse me, about spirituality. And um, I wrote it down and I posted it on Facebook, you know, like two o'clock in the morning. And by like 1130 in the morning, I had all this commentary. And, you know, in my mind, it was just like, this is random. You know, this is my own random (laughs) thoughts. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. And so for all of these people to connect to it, and then my friend wanted to make a short film out of it. And it was, it was crazy to me. I was like, what? So, yeah. So some of the things are like things that are in my brain that I'm like, oh, let me share this, or let me just say it out loud, see how it feels. And when it resonates with other people, it's weird to me. (laughs) Well, I mean, your words have impact. And I think it's always interesting to, you know, when you put something out there, you know, to see how people respond, you know, I mean, I think we were talking about that earlier in the show. It's like, you know, and like sort of the art of creation and putting it out there and then letting go to see what, you know, and trying to not have attachment to how it's received. But it sounds like, you know, you're really well received. People are reading your stuff and responding and want to make other art from it. So that's incredible. Yeah. 
So it's, it's an overwhelming feeling, you know, to experience that. I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know how all screenwriters feel or how people who write things that get adapted for the big screen and people are coming to audition for something that you were sitting in your living room, you know, talking about at one point. I don't know how if everyone has that same amazing feeling of, oh, wow, this is crazy because it's something that started in my brain, you know, started with little old me and now you know, it's a big deal. Like I look at Issa Rae, I like her work a lot. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she started with like doing kind of like awkward black girl Mm -hmm. was like her thing that she was doing. And it has evolved into this whole movement and everyone has opinions and a side and, you know, who and characters that they, you know what I mean? And it's like, this thing got so big and here she was just thinking like, okay, I'm just documenting or expressing how I feel to be an awkward, you know, black woman in California, you know, and it, it's taken on this whole livelihood. Yeah. I mean, I love her show Insecure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the whole Lawrence storyline, I don't know. Mm. I was just like, what? They just got, okay. I won't say any spoilers. Yeah. Let's not, <laughs> let's not blow it, but we are, we, you know, we don't know if we want to love or hate Lawrence. <laughs> We love them for five minutes and then we don't like them. I know. And the Molly friendship, we're looking at Molly like, girl, what is really happening? I know. I watched Yvonne's HBO special too. I don't know if you saw that, the comedy special. And yeah, but the her character, Molly, it's just like, she got Emmy nominated for that. I think there was mm-hmm. a bunch of Emmys that came out of it, but her character, I was just like, whoa, come mm-hmm. on. But And then you see, like, for me, I look at the friendships and I look at the relationships and I look at my own relationships in my life and I think, do I have anybody like that? So, you know, it's interesting when art imitates life and vice versa, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool about Issa Rae's work and I, I love what she does. So, yeah. Yeah, it's always cool to see, like, somebody who is inspiring you because she started like you said and then it's like it grew like she grew mm-hmm. an audience and now she's like you know emmy nominated i think she, i don't know if she won an emmy but she's like you know she's in hollywood doing it up so she's also just an amazing amazing actress right so like she was yeah. in um the photograph with lakeith sandfield i believe and Baby, that movie was everything for me, you know, and representation is so important for our community. So one thing that's huge is just seeing not just people of color on big screens, but to see particularly brown skinned lead actors and actresses in non-stereotypical roles telling regular stories about life and love and relationships that is so important to me and like that was a huge part of the reason why I had started I got so big into Nollywood which is like Nigerian and Ghana films you know Mm -hmm. films that are made there and and that was part of the reason was because it was so much representation and imagery and unique to being brown skin because it's it's also you know we're in a very colorist environment in hollywood so you'll see a lot of fairer skinned you know african americans p- playing leads as far as women are concerned so seeing brown skinned 
leads in, you know, Black Panther and, you know, the photograph and just all the different works that have come out over the recent years, it's been amazing. You know, it's been so important and it's been, it really is inspirational and uplifting. Yeah. And important and more and more and more and more needs to happen for sure. Yes. Yeah. We need that. And I'm excited. And since we are, you know, we came back, you know, real time, I did want to say, you know, speak just ever so slightly about Chadwick Bosman passing and people have been, you know, there's been so much conversation surrounding how did this man, you know, give us so much film and endure so much pain during that time. And it just shows a gap of knowledge for how cancer works (laughs) and how filmmaking works, right? So, you know, and I'm not saying that he is absolutely remarkable, you know, however, I think some consideration has to be taken into the fact that, you know, there's an overlay of production versus release date, Mm-hmm. And also diagnosis versus healing stages. So there were multiple, numerous times where throughout the course of that time, he was healing during production or he was healing when the movie had dropped and then he was on to the next. You know what I mean? It wasn't like some people have this image of like you're diagnosed with cancer and then you're just laying there waiting to die. <laughs> you know, it's like it doesn't work like that. Right. And there's been all these, like, ironically, Liz, there's been all these, like, conspiracy theories and, you know, how did he hold it in and not tell anybody? And, you know, is that what they're just telling us? (laughs) Yeah. And I... Why do people thinking about that and talking about that, you know? Because I think we're... the, The distrust that we're experiencing in this in our in our society right now the high level of distrust for government and entities and the disrespect that people of color are being shown just has a lot of people on paranoia you know has a lot of people on 10 but having lost someone extremely close to me having lost a couple of people extremely close to me almost in the same manner you know i have a cousin that didn't tell me Like she had cancer and she was in remission. And the week that it came back, like she's texting and talking to me every day, like normal. She never once said, I'm in the hospital, the cancer's back, nothing. Like she was texting me up until just a few hours before she died. And she never once said anything. So it's very possible for people to live their life in that way. You know what I mean? Because they want to just live. They want to just be seen as human beings and exit the planet on their own terms. Right. And I get that. And I mean, for you, I mean, what was that like for you to sort of find out that, you know, your cousin who you were talking to and close to like passes away and you're like, but wait, what just happened? I mean, How did you feel about that? I was devastated. I mean, I was the last person that she texted. She texted me at about one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we were just kind of having a very trivial conversation. Our conversations were always like light. She was just, she was a light. She was just a super sweet spirit, super dope soul. I miss her immensely. And later that same day, you know, I went to work like normal, 
that same day I got home and I got the news that she passed and I was absolutely devastated. I, I was just like, it was, impo- I felt like it was impossible. I was like, I was literally just talking to her. <laughs> Were you shocked? Did you feel? I like- was shocked. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And that was a really hard blow. You know what I mean? Like I've lost a lot of people, but that one was really special because the one thing that I took away from her death was how valuable the time that we spend with people is and what are we pouring into and what are we taking out of those exchanges of energies? Yeah. And if your energy exchange that is not healthy, that's not inspirational, that's not positive, that's not uplifting, that doesn't pour into your soul. Why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she obviously was like, you know, wanted to reach out to you probably. I, I mean, I don't know what your relationship was like, but if you were one of the last person she texted, I mean, she obviously really loved you and felt connected to you and, you know, was just living her life with you, you know? We were planning, she was engaged. We were planning her wedding. She was really excited about that. She was just the type of person that found gratitude and even, and she had always been like that even since a kid. She was just one of those people that found gratitude in even the smallest of things. So like one year of like for Christmas, I remember one year my mom asked like, what do you want for Christmas? And she was like delighted about chia pets. I don't know if you remember those, but they were like, you, they grew into a pet, you know, and my mom got her one. And I just remember she, like, you would have thought she got like the Barbie dream house. <laughs> it was like, but that's the way she was, you know, and, and our conversations were like, she was very domestic. So she was really excited about like her fiance had gotten her like a new toaster, I want to say. And she was just like, I got a new toaster, you know, like she was just that type of person. And I think if we have more people in our circle that are pouring into us in a loving way, you know, and that's not to say, Liz, that people don't have problems. People don't need to vent, you know, people are never gonna say a negative thing. But I think that, well, I, I know that, I've had to cut off relationships in my own life that have not been productive, you know, that have not poured into me. And the loss of my sweet Gina was definitely shed light on that and how I like harvesting that energy, harvesting the good, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, just talking about her right now, Brent, brings forth her memory, you know? Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, Chadwick, Bosman's death, like really you saw parallels, you know, in terms of his cancer treatment and like what people see, you know, with what you also experience. Cause I just think like people, I think what I'm seeing is that people are just like, he held it, you know, he, he didn't tell anybody that he was struggling and, you know, or he was sick and, you know, it's like, people are like shocked and it's like, well, he doesn't have to like, just because he's an actor and he's a public person doesn't mean that he has to like tell everybody that he's going through cancer treatment while he's filming, you know, and doing his work, you know, I'm sure he was held by his family and his community and his caretakers. And, and then it's just like, of course, in our social media land, like everybody has something to say about it, but you know, he did him. Well, he also, you understand, was part of a franchise and he did something 
monumentous when mm -hmm. Black Panther came out, mm -hmm. right? And so they were already planning additional sequels. And what Black Panther meant for him was being the icon of a whole generation of little people that look like him. Mm -hmm. And I think for him, the weight of that, like that was so important to him that, you know, he could have very well told his manager, hey, you know, I have cancer. I'm not going to be filming anymore. You know what I mean? Like he could have very well stepped out and took a chance of not getting cast on anything or not doing any other work and just really honed in on his health and, you know, said F it as far as the industry was concerned. But I think what speaks volumes about his character is that he understood he had to have thought, you know, this has been so life changing. I mean, this movie was the first movie that a whole generation of little people got to see themselves as a main character. You know, it would be equivalent to being like a seven year old and seeing Batman, you know, and Batman looks like you. And this was the first time that a whole generation of people got to have that moment. And I think that he was so protective of that moment. And he knew what a huge life-changing thing that was. That he was so protective of it. And he just wanted to honor it. You know, he just wanted to honor it. And, and that, to me, is the real hero and the real legacy that he left. Like, And it also spoke volumes to me about his team, you know, how insulated his team was, how insulated and how great his circle was that he could have something in this time of social media and screenshotting and all of the things that are happening, that he could have a team that was so protective of him also because they understood the legacy that he was leaving behind, that it was, it stayed a secret. Yeah. And that to me was the thing that there were lots of things that brought tears to my eyes about it and that were very deja vu for the loss of my brother. My brother passed in the same way, unfortunately, much younger. He was only 29. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it speaks volumes about your character and the integrity and who you are as a person when the people on your team are just as dope as you are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Don't cry, Liz. Oh, I was just taking a minute because it is, it's just like, it's so impactful and powerful. And, you know, he did leave behind a legacy and, you know, for a whole generation of children to carry that forward. I mean, so he is in many people's hearts, you know? So Kai, how can people follow along with you on your journey? We're going to put everything in the show notes, but what's the best way for people to follow you? Head on over to IG, wonderful little land of Instagram. And I am at author underscore Kai underscore Kelly. My link is in the bio. It has every, all things Kai can be accessed that way. You can hear my audio, my track that's on all streaming services called It's All a Blur. You can purchase the book. I have some other goodies in there for you. So that's definitely the best way to get in contact with me. You can email me at bookingkaikelly at gmail.com <laughs> for any type of inquiries or anything that you want me to do or work with me. Um, that's really the best way to contact me. Okay. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Kai. I appreciate you. It's been awesome to chat and talk about all of these amazing things that you're doing. And I always love talking to you. Thank you, Liz. I always love talking to you. So sweet. Conversations is produced by Rhino Girl Media, a communications consulting company. To advance or evolve your next communications project, check out my website, rhinogirlmedia.com, or contact me at liz at rhinogirlmedia.com. You can always follow me on Instagram at Gold. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review, share it, or send me some love. Thanks for listening. Until next time.